Repentance, Climate Change, and Living in a Fish. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, a weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Huge stuff happening on the events front. Not only is Lost and Found coming in the near future to Phoenix and to Los Angeles, but I'm actually going on tour with Gunger. Go to AskScienceMike.com, click on the events button to learn more. I'll talk about it at the end of the show, but for now, let's get it started. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Kate, and I live in Tallahassee. Uh, We've actually met once, but it was right after your concussion, so I think you may not remember me, but that's okay. I have a question about global warming and um, CO2 emissions and greenhouse gases, specifically as it pertains to cattle ranching or cattle raising in the livestock industry. Um, I recently watched the documentary on Netflix um, called Cowspiracy, and the information in it was really shocking to me and sort of new. I had never heard of it um, before that um, instead of CO2 emissions from like cars and transportation, this documentary claimed that the biggest contributor to global warming and greenhouse gas emissions was the livestock industry. Now, this documentary really sort of rocked my world, and I pretty much immediately decided that I would begin the process of going vegan, and my girlfriend got on board, and we were really excited about that, but my parents reminded me that I have a tendency to kind of see things in black and white and to be very quick to jump on board with something like this and just to believe um, things like this, so I wanted to get your opinion to ask whether or not you had seen the documentary, or if you uh, knew about anything um, pertaining to this, whether or not livestock and um, cattle raising and things like that are actually contributing to um, climate change in the way that this documentary claimed, and also um, contributing to deforestation of the rainforest, um, among other things. So, yeah, I was just wondering if you had any knowledge of that or what your opinion was on, um, I don't know, the science behind cows and and animal livestock and how that might be affecting um, climate change. So anyways, thank you so much uh, for everything that you do. I hope to see you again sometime soon. And thanks for answering my question. Bye. Well, I haven't seen Cowspiracy. <laughs> I have trouble even saying the name of that uh, documentary. But I am very familiar with the role livestock and other agriculture plays in global climate change, specifically man-made climate change. Changes in the climate that are caused not by purely natural environmental phenomenon, but are driven by the activities of our species. And the news isn't great here. (laughs) I first want to say that uh, modern agriculture is in many ways miraculous. We've made methodologies and processes and systems for extracting incredible amounts of nutritional value from soil. Without modern agriculture, 
the world would starve. Backyard agriculture simply won't scale to the level of population we have on the earth today. And some form of large scale agriculture is necessary to maintain the human population. So I want to start by saying I'm not demonizing agriculture. And I think most of the great ills that large scale agriculture are causing the planet were driven out of a a genuine motive to feed people. Uh, Now, of course, there's a whole other thing we can get in here into factory farming and the role of capitalism and, and, and profit motives uh, tied to food production. I'm going to dodge that for this this question uh, just because, you know, that'd be a three-hour podcast. Maybe it's something we'll talk about on the liturgist at some point. But let's kind of talk about uh, the role specifically livestock plays. So livestock is not the only driver of global climate change, but it is absolutely a significant one, and that's for a few reasons. Number one, livestock, especially, especially cows, um, produce methane as part of their digestive process. Now, methane is actually a really intense greenhouse gas. Uh, per volume, it drives more warming of the earth than CO2. So if you have the same amount of methane versus the same amount of CO2, uh, methane is a more powerful greenhouse gas. But it's not that simple. Uh, methane also breaks down more readily in the atmosphere. It's not stable um, exposure to the sun's radiation, ultraviolet light, will cause methane to break down into components that aren't greenhouse gases or are less intense greenhouse gases. And so unlike CO2, that once it's out there, it's relatively difficult to pull out of the atmosphere. If you lower methane emissions, methane levels in the atmosphere drop pretty quickly. Okay, So that's actually a hopeful thing. If you produce less methane, if we reduce our meat consumption, uh, methane levels can drop pretty fast. Now, but it's not just methane, even though methane's a huge problem. Uh, and it's it's actually remarkable how much methane a single cow can produce. They've actually done experiments where they've attached big drums directly to cows' stomachs, and they can fill up these 55-gallon drums with methane gas in relatively short periods of time. Um, I don't have the data in front of me. My memory is that it's some, somewhere south of a 24-hour period, uh, but please don't quote me on that. It should be easy to find on Google. But livestock also directly creates CO2 emissions. Number one, the energy required to um, ship cows, slaughter cows, and other animals is a lot. But it's also cows have to eat, pigs have to eat, chickens have to eat, and they eat many of the same foods that we do. So there's a lot of acreage devoted to feeding livestock and that – Grains, those vegetables, are farmed with tractors and machines burning CO2 gas, and they're shipped in trucks and freight that is burning fossil fuels. And so that does contribute to fossil fuel emissions in the atmosphere significantly. And not only that, uh, the ever-growing demand for meat, not only in the United States but across the world, Actually, demand in the United States is going down a bit, uh, but globally means that we're driving up incredible population levels of livestock animals on the planet right now. Totally ahistoric numbers, really phenomenal stuff. And as you mentioned in your question, there's the whole deforestation thing. So we cut down forests to create grazing land for the animals and to create more agricultural land to raise grains to feed animals. And then it hits you with a double whammy. 
not only does that process produce greenhouse gases because you're burning a lot of fossil fuels to do it, but you're also taking the trees out of the equation. And trees are really helpful. They're natural uh, atmosphere scrubbers. Trees love to pull out carbon from the air. That's how photosynthesis works. And the less trees we have, the, <laughs> the less scrubbers we have running. So we're not only producing more greenhouse gases, we're cutting the ecosystem's ability to absorb carbon. Now, depending on who you ask, agriculture, meat-based agriculture is said to be responsible from anywhere from 20 to 50% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Now, 20% would be when you talk to the food lobby. 50% would be when you talk to the most um, intense, I might even say radical, people who are really concerned about climate change. Uh, and they both bring their biases and they, they kind of pull the figure. But I mean, that means you could probably safely say 35%. <laughs> I mean, I think most climate scientists would probably agree with that. And that means eating less meat is an easy way to drive environmental changes, to reduce climate change. That's something people, what can I do when you talk about something as big as global climate change? Well, guess what? Changing your diet can really materially affect the amount of carbon we release into the atmosphere because this stuff is driven by demand. So every time you eat a hamburger, you eat a steak, you know, you're eating red meat, you're not only doing something that's not great for your health, very little red meat is needed by your diet. I mean, you get by with none, but a healthy amount of red meat is, is very limited. Um, but you're also driving these, these carbon emissions. Now, to give you some idea, to produce one kilogram of meat, that's beef, produces 34.6 kilograms of carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, if you do, if you eat lamb instead, you're cutting it for the same one kilogram of meat down to 17.4 kilograms of CO2. Pork is even lower, 6.35 kilograms of CO2 for every one kilogram of meat, and chicken is all the way down below five, four, 4.57 kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of meat. Here's the thing: we've known for a long time less meat is better for you. Not only for the reasons of animal suffering, but climate change. I'm heavily drawn towards veganism and vegetarianism. I can't do it. I start to get kind of a twitch if I don't eat any meat at all. So what I've done is I've tried to gradually reduce the amount of meat that I eat. And I've done that successfully. I eat a lot, and I mean a lot less meat than I used to. And what I'm trying to do instead of making some line in the sand where I'm a, I'm a vegetarian now, I'm kind of trying to just gradually become a vegetarian. Human brains tend to do a little bit better with gradual change than sudden change. And I'm trying to trick my brain into not rebelling and just going along with the flow. Uh, I've also been diagnosed uh, pre-diabetic earlier this year. So I've got to lose some weight and lowering my meat consumption is a huge part of pulling that off. And uh, it's, it's working. I've lost uh, 10 pounds so far. And I've cut my contribution to carbon emissions. So a lot of those documentaries you watch them, they're really scary. They take the most extreme positions among climate scientists and present them as consensus. I saw another documentary called Racing Extinction that does that. Everything they said is science, but they, they presented it in the most severe light. But it doesn't matter to some degree because whether we're talking about hitting climate tipping points caused by you know permafrost melt and releasing even more methane in the atmosphere in 30 years or 150 years, 
what we're doing to the atmosphere and therefore to the planet is unprecedented and represents a real threat to the way we live. You know, we could be looking at in my lifetime having to abandon the city of Miami. And let's say that that's too soon, that that uh, the process will take longer than that. It's still in my, my kid's lifetime, my grandkid's lifetime. In just two or three generations, climate change is going to drive dramatic changes in sea levels, in how rapidly deserts expand. And we're at the point where drastic changes are needed. And when governments come together, it's difficult to get a consensus view. It's difficult. Everybody tries to look out for their interests. But we, members of society, we can drive changes today because the only person you have to convince is yourself. So uh, don't panic. But um, making changes today and how you live matter. The more people that do it, the lower carbon emissions are. And one of the best things, one of the most powerful things you can do to combat climate change is, in fact, reducing or eliminating meat in your diet. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hi, Science Mike. If humans had time travel and we ignore any paradoxes that would arise from using it, how far into the past could we go before genetic shift would make it impossible to reproduce with ancient humans? Thanks, Hannah. I want to start the question by saying we have time travel technology. If you get on an airplane, you're traveling slightly slower through time than you are on the surface of the earth. I'm being a little clever. We're always traveling through time forward and using relativity. You can change the speed with which you travel forward through time. We see no plausible way in physics today to go back in time. So you don't have to worry about paradox because (laughs) the laws of physics... I've seen a couple of proposals that uh, are out of my league, but but I think it's a consensus in physics today that backwards time travel is impossible. But the the core question here, how far back are we us, is, is what we're looking at. And this really cuts to the heart of some of the most common misconceptions about uh, Darwinian evolution. Namely that, you know, you hear people ask about transitional fossils a lot. And you hear people talking about the emergence of species. I want to go and let you know here that's an incredibly gradual process. And let's look at our nearest genetic relatives as an example. Chimpanzees and bonobos. They're separated by uh, rivers. These two populations, they have been for a long time. They don't naturally interbreed, but they can't. uh, And they're considered two different species. In captivity specifically in circuses, uh, chimpanzees and bonobos have interbred and produced successful offspring, even though they are two separate species. And this is an important point. There's not like this arbitrary line at which two species are different. This is a process we study. It's it's to some degree arbitrary. Uh, The line between a subspecies and a species It requires expert review and debate to determine that two species are separate. But chimps and bonobos can successfully interbreed. And what you're looking at is how similar is your DNA? That's the core idea in a species. 
Because as you've alluded to in the question, the more drift there is, the less likely that you can produce successful offspring. So even with the same species, there's some chance that your offspring won't be successful. Reproduction is hard. Trigger warning here, I'm going to talk a little bit about lost pregnancies, but it's very common even in our species when two healthy homo sapiens mate that the uh, zygote isn't viable, the neural tube doesn't form correctly, and the pregnancy spontaneously ends. And the more drift you have, the more likely it is that that this offspring is going to be in some way non-viable. So the first sign you sort of see is in species that have drifted enough that they can still mate, still conceive. The offspring is viable but can't reproduce. So it's it's sterile in some way. You see that in agriculture, breeding different uh, horses, mules, donkeys, that stuff. So now if we think about chimpanzees and bonobos, their offspring often can reproduce. In fact, frequently can reproduce because those species are very similar. So when we look at other hominids, you have different human subspecies. So they call us Homo sapiens sapiens uh, to denote current humans are a subspecies of human. We're the only subspecies of human alive, but if you go back into the fossil record, you find other species of Homo sapiens, and this is a critical. There's a disagreement over different lineages of hominids, whether they're subspecies of human or not. There's an ongoing controversy about Neanderthals. Are Neanderthals a separate species or a subspecies of Homo sapiens? There is not a scientific consensus on that point. But when we introduce genetic testing into the equation, we've discovered that all non-African Homo sapiens have some percentage between 1 and 5% of their DNA is Neanderthal DNA. So as Homo sapiens left Africa and entered the European continent, we interbred with Homo sapiens so much that every person who has non-African lineage is part Neanderthal. So you can go back 150,000 years. That interbreeding, we think, happened 38,000 years. But if you go back even further, 150, 200,000, even further back in time, to anatomic and modern humans, still Homo sapiens, probably a different subspecies, you find that we also interbred with other hominid species like Homo erectus and Homo habilis. Homo erectus is the, the upright human. Homo habilis means the tool-using human. Those are arguably not subspecies of humans, but different species. Now, we don't have uh, DNA evidence for that Uh, direct DNA evidence because we don't have preserved DNA for those species like we do for Neanderthal, but we've effectively done that with computer modeling and wound back the DNA and seen evidence that uh, all humans have some degree of Homo erectus and Homo habilis DNA in their genetic code. So pretty far, a couple hundred thousand years, and interbreeding is still possible. You may even go even further back and have some genetically viable offspring. Now, what's interesting here is we know that not only did couplings between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals happen successfully, but those offspring were able to reproduce and be successful enough in society to be accepted. That's why we all have Neanderthal DNA. So in the tree of life, uh, humans, and this really runs counter to a lot of the way 
especially Christians think about this or, or theists, uh, we're presented as being uh, unique and made in the image of God. And th- that's language I use and language I agree with, our creative capacity, our ability to move with intent, with awareness, uh, with ethical implications. But I don't know that that gift is unique to our species. And as we see in evolution, that line of species is is much more blurry, much fuzzier than most people think about. So I can't give you a definitive answer here because we don't have DNA records for these more ancient species. But I think it's a relatively safe assumption that you can wind back the clock 200,000 to 250, maybe even 300,000 years and find other groups of hominids that Homo sapiens can interbreed with. Pretty wild stuff undermines a lot of our assumptions here. And I know this probably won't be the most popular answer for my more conservative listeners, uh, but as always, I'm committed to give you the best and most honest answer I can come up with. So thank you. Our next question also came in via email, and it reads, Hi, Science Mike. Great podcast. You do a wonderful job of being thoughtful and honest in your discussion and help create a safe environment for people to feel comfortable discussing some very sensitive topics. I can't tell you how much clarity it has given me in my own life. Keep it up. I'll get right to it. Can you describe neurologically, neurobiologically, psychologically why repentance is so beneficial for human beings? The more I read the Bible, the more I understand its underlying theme to be about the conscious admission of falling short of a standard and that the understanding that whatever being created us, that being has ultimately chosen not to hold our transgressions against us. For a long time, I avoided scripture because I felt in order to embrace the forgiveness espoused in the Bible, I also had to accept some of the values I would describe as archaic, for example, homosexuality being a sin. It wasn't until I began to experience firsthand the power of forgiveness and redemption in my own life that I became more comfortable spending time in the Bible. I now try to spend time reading it every day. Repentance really isn't an idea that is talked about in the secular sphere, and it definitely isn't a word that is tossed around at all. It is arguably the most powerful avenue for deep, genuine, lasting change. I feel if people understood biologically why the doctrine of repentance has such value that they would be more inclined to embrace the concept and less likely to shun scripture because they don't see eye to eye on some of the other social issues. So what do you think, Mike? What does science have to say about the value of repentance? I kind of knew I wanted to go with this answer immediately, and it was relatively difficult to come up specifically finding any science where people have studied repentance. So there is a language gap here, certainly between uh, Judeo-Christian religions and uh, the terminology science uses to describe brain function. I actually wasn't able to find one study, (laughs) and I looked, where, you know, for example, a, a neuroscientist studied people in a state of repentance. Couldn't do it. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what repentance means. A common definition would be remorse or contrition for one's past actions or sins or an act or the process of being repentant. See, also penitence. And then I also looked up something in a Bible dictionary, and it basically said there were several Greek uh, verbs used for repentance, 
And from those Greek words as well as the Hebrew word and uh, the original Old Testament, that they identified four components of repentance. One is a true sense of one's own guilt and sinfulness. Two is an apprehension of God's mercy in Christ. Three is an actual hatred of sin. Four, a persistent endeavor after a holy life in walking with God in the way of his commandments. Okay. (laughs) That's some heavy stuff. Um, And for example, hating sin. Um, Now this is, that's not direct biblical language, although they provide some scriptural justification for it. Um, Hating sin is not going to be something that science is going to back up as neurologically beneficial. However, to really answer this question, I wanted to focus on one thing, and that, that's the difference between guilt and shame and how that relates to the Christian idea of repentance. Shame is basically whenever you have uh, negative feelings about something involving your identity, who you are. And shame is toxic. It's harmful to people. And it's uh, related to our neurocognitive mechanisms for social cohesion. We want to feel like we belong to a group. And when you have shame, you have something you're afraid to reveal about yourself because you believe it endangers your ability to be connected with others. It endangers your ability to have position and social standing. Shame is bad as much as possible in my work, I try to destroy shame everywhere I find it. Shame keeps people in bondage. Shame makes people afraid of who they are. Guilt is very similar but neurologically distinct, and it's not over who you are but over something you've done. And guilt can be a healthy emotion when it compels behavioral change. Too much guilt can actually produce shame if you just focus on guilt. Um, but if you allow guilt to modify your behavior, to work toward restitution, then it is effective. And so I would say there, that thing of feeling guilty over something you've done, if it's if it's if you if you're genuinely hurting people, if you're violating someone's consent, if you're producing suffering, guilt's an appropriate response. And in repentance, this idea of Having this guilt, this moment of conviction, and then turning away from that behavior is beneficial. In the secular world, they would call that restorative justice. Instead of punitive justice, where the focus is punishment, restorative justice, the focus is on righting wrongs. And most social scientists, and certainly neuroscientists, would say that that is a better kind of justice. And and seems to be linked with this idea of repentance. We can have a debate over the merit of the idea of sin. Some people think that the idea that humanity is fundamentally broken is more damaging than helpful. That's certainly a commonly held critique in atheist circles. I still use the term sin and I'm comfortable with it because human beings do show a remarkable capacity to operate in self-serving ways even when they know Doing so harms other people. I think institutional racism is a sin as much as I think overt intentional racism is a sin. 
I think, shaming lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer people is sin. It is a falling into, a giving in to what in Genesis is described as the whisper of a serpent, a desire to have what is yours to the exclusion of others. And I think a call to repentance, to turn away from these sins, is good and beneficial. I am daily trying to repent of racism in my life. I am daily repenting of the ways I, yes, I have contributed to a society that marginalizes and oppresses not just people of color, not just people of different sexual orientations and gender identities, but people in poverty, the least of these. If repentance is oppressive, if repentance is associated with damnation, I think it's harmful. But if repentance invites us into the most compassionate, empathetic behaviors human beings are capable of, then I think you can make a great scientific argument that guilt combined with a change in behavior that leads to restorative justice is good for the species and also good for the individual who repents. Hey, Mike, this is Scott from L.A. Had the chance to hear you in Chicago at Storyline a couple of weeks ago, and your talks were intriguing and thought-provoking, so thank you. Here's my question. Scientifically, do you think that a human can survive for any significant amount of time within the stomach of a fish? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the story of Jonah. This program has a remarkably diverse audience. It astounds me every week when I read the questions, when I look at your tweets, when I read your emails and Facebook posts. This is a program that has a significant listenership of self-described atheists or agnostics, non-religious affiliated people, uh, liberal Christians, progressive Christians, conservative Christians, evangelical Christians. Uh, There appear to be a small number of Muslims who listen to the program. (laughs) It's, It's wild. So when I venture into these territories, I always worry about how my answer will affect people. And so I'm going to answer this question from a few different perspectives and let you decide which perspective best fits you, okay? So let's start purely scientifically, naturalistically. Let's remove either an assumption that God exists as a being who who intervenes in reality or that God exists at all. And from that pure naturalistic perspective, the story of Jonah is completely non-plausible. So a whale shark would be an example of a fish large enough to fit a human in its mouth. However, its esophagus is tiny because it's a filter feeder. It's not meant to eat animals this size. Whale sharks spit out things that enter their mouth that aren't their food source of plankton and very small microscopic organisms and would readily spit a human out. Even if they didn't, there is no oxygen, none, in a whale shark's mouth. And if you look at other fish, sharks that could swallow a human being whole, they don't have lungs. They're not inhaling oxygen. And if there were any gases in their digestive system, it would not be what we call breathable air or atmospheric air, but instead digestive gases, uh, methane, these sorts of things. 
totally unbreathable. Not to mention the purpose of these animals' stomachs is to break down organic matter. And in the case of fish, that could swallow us like a great white shark, animal tissue. Uh, you would be digested in that stomach. No chance for survival. Now, if we think about whales, again, filter feeding whales, esophagus, we're not going to make it down there. Uh, even if we did get into their stomachs, it's meant to break down tissue. There's no oxygen. Now, sperm whales could certainly swallow a human being. We could fit through their esophagus. Uh, but sperm whales are predators. And there's a couple of accounts of people being cut out of the stomachs of sperm whales. They, they're not plausible. They're old accounts. They're unsourced. They appear to be early urban legends. Scientifically speaking, I'm comfortable making the assertion. Forget three days. You're not going to last an hour in the digestive tract of a fish or a whale. It's just not going to happen. Now, when you introduce a God actor into the story, God could literally do anything, <laughs> right? God could create a one-off fish whose only job is to swallow Jonah and have an oxygen-rich environment for him to breathe for three days before vomiting him up somewhere, okay? It's plausible, but only because literally anything is plausible when you introduce an all-powerful actor. So if you're going to take the story of Jonah as a literal account, I think it requires an assumption of an interventionist, maybe not all-powerful, but very powerful deity driving that story forward. What do I think about the story of Jonah? I think the story of Jonah is primarily mythic, that it's a story about a reluctance to follow God's calling towards justice for a people group you despise. It's about fear. It's about hatred. So in the story of Jonah, Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, which are people that are hated and despised and are military adversaries of his people, and he doesn't want to. And he ends up, you know, as we know, being swallowed by a fish, vomited on the shore, and then he does what he was supposed to do. And when the people hear Jonah's words, the people of Nineveh, they actually repent, they turn away, and God redeems their city. And then Jonah gets angry about it. <laughs> I think that's a great story that teaches us, absolutely teaches us how many Americans today think of Iran as Nineveh a lot. It's a, it's a good story. Now, one criticism I've seen from conservative Christians about people like me who dismiss Jonah historical basis and, and take it merely as myth or allegory is that you know, Jesus himself spoke of Jonah, and so then you're calling Jesus a liar or mistaken. I don't think that it undermines Jesus to have Jesus speaking in the language and cultural expectations of his day. I have no doubt that significant, maybe the vast majority, maybe all first century Jews thought of the story of Jonah as a historical account. It doesn't matter. The point of that story is to invoke a response in us, not to relay historical claims. 
So it doesn't bother me a bit to have the idea that that Jesus could have spoke about Jonah in that manner. I think this kind of tension, this these fights come down to us projecting a particular set of modernist assumptions, not only onto Jesus, but onto God. My view is that, that God is drawing humanity, drawing humanity towards healing, towards redemption. That's salvation. That's the work of Christ. And using a story about a man who was reluctant or reticent to deliver a message of hope and redemption to a people group he despised was not only timely in those days, I think it might be more timely now. I think this story has not aged poorly. It's aged incredibly well, and we clearly still have not learned its lesson because the modern geopolitical landscape, the modern American political landscape is so ready to name someone as the other, to name someone as unworthy of the grace and redemption that we ourselves speak. So I don't care if Jonah was actually swallowed by a fish because I know exactly what it's like to not want to talk with the people of Nineveh. Well, that's another episode of Ask Science Mike in the books, and I have got more events in the next couple of months than I've ever had. There's more opportunities to come hang out and meet in person uh, than there has ever been. I'm so excited about it. First of all, February 26th, I'll be in Phoenix, Arizona. February 27th, I'll be in Los Angeles. Both of those events are with the liturgist doing an event called Lost and Found. It's a beautiful event, a night where we tell the stories of losing faith and then encountering God in little vignettes. It's interspersed with really incredible music by Gunger and the Brilliance with guided meditations, and we'll come together at the table and do the Eucharist. You don't want to miss that if you're in Phoenix or Los Angeles. There's actually two events in a row in Los Angeles don't miss it. And then starting March 10th, I'm actually going on Gunger's One Wild Life Tour. We're kicking it off in Denver. From there, we'll go to Albuquerque, Phoenix again, San Diego, Tucson, Santa Cruz, California, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, California, San Francisco, California. Uh, we'll also hit uh, Dallas, Texas, San Antonio, Texas, Waco, Texas, and Houston in the course of that tour. So it'll be a rock show. Gunger will play their music. I may open with a little bit of uh, science mic weirdness. And then we'll finish the evening with a liturgist podcast style discussion and Q&A. I'd love to see you in any of those cities. April the 8th, I'll be in Ventura, California. Pete Enns and I are doing a multi-day event called Issues of Faith, Science, and the Bible. It's going to be great. If you know Pete Enns' work, you know He's one of the main voices in how I approach Scripture. A lot of people have asked for us to do an event together, and and we're doing it. It's happening in Ventura, California. And then April 23rd, I'll be in Portland, Oregon at Cascade Church, Portland. And May 14th, I'll be at Hope Fellowship in Frisco, Texas. Both of those are just Science Mike events. Uh, So that's a lot. You can go to AskScienceMike.com. And there's an events tab right at the top of the screen, almost in the top right, where you can get information about all those venues, times, dates, 
I'd love to see you. My absolute favorite thing is going on the road and meeting you face-to-face. It's cool to tweet with you. It's cool to get your questions to the show. But my, I stand there for an hour and a half at least after every event to meet every person who wants to meet before I head back to the hotel or move on to the next city. So I'd love to see you uh, at any of these events in February, March, April, or May. Uh, I do want to thank all of you patrons who are keeping the show alive on Patreon. This show is listener-supported. You can be a part of that. If you go to AskScienceMike.com and click the Patreon button, if you send a dollar a month, that's great. $5 a month is phenomenal. That little bit is what keeps the show viable and on the air and helps cover the cost of production. And uh, I really appreciate all my patrons who do that. Uh, also, for the show to go, we always need new questions. So if you go to AskScienceMike.com, you can submit questions by either typing them or by recording your voice. You can also tweet me using the hashtag AskScienceMike, and that'll put your question in for consideration for the program. And huge thanks. Some of the funniest iTunes reviews we've ever had have been the last few weeks. I read those, the hilarious ones. Oh, man, I love them. Uh, if, if you're wondering, if <laughs> I love it when people rate the show, but it's worth going to just read the reviews. Some of them are side-stitchingly funny. So thanks to all you folks who have reviewed the show. It helps people find out about it on iTunes. Finally, I want to thank Andrew Galucky, who's been doing our pre-production lately. The show has gotten so much better with Andrew's hand on the rudder here picking the questions. I tend to, to dodge certain questions for a long time because I think they'll be too controversial or too hard to research. And Andrew doesn't let me. <laughs> so he's been picking the Patreon poll questions and also helping me out in weeks like this where the time frame's so tight that there's no time for a poll. He's still picking the questions, doing a phenomenal job. Of course, the show sounds amazing because of Greg Nordine and his work as the show's producer. And our theme song is by Jeb Bodiford, and people sing it to me all the time. It's super catchy. So I hope to see you uh, in the next couple of months. Now, ooh, what if you don't live in Texas or Portland or the Southwest? Piece of cake. If you go to AskScienceMike.com, there's a book mic button in the upper right-hand corner. If you tap that button and fill out the form, there's a lot of ways to get me there. Uh, if you're in a market where I've got great downloads, we can do Ask Science Mike Live. And if you can help me get a venue and some volunteers and some airfare, we can sell tickets and then there's no fee to get me in your city. Now, that's got to be in a city where I've got enough downloads to make that viable. But even if that's not the case, um, my speaking fees are pretty reasonable. <laughs> so I'd love to come to your part of the country. All you've got to do is find an organization who wants to host some authentic conversation about science and faith. And I'm there. I can go to AskScienceMike.com and tap Book Mike. Obviously, as you hear, 2016 is booking really fast. So if you're thinking about seeing me this year, don't wait too long to start that process of talking with Jim Chafee and the folks at the Chafee Management Group. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody, and I can't wait to see you next week. Ah!